0: This episode is brought to you in part by Our Daily Bread Ministries. Experience the joy and freedom that comes from a faith that perseveres. Check out Unshakable Moxie, growing a resilient faith at unshakablemoxie.com from Our Daily Bread Ministries. Visit unshakablemoxie.com.
1: If you are an artist, you want to learn how to work with the local gallery. If you're a school teacher, you want, to, you want to be part of a really great school. Whatever you're calling, you're going to find that it requires some level of engagement with an institution.
2: If a global pandemic has got you thinking about switching jobs or moving locations, you're dealing with questions of vocation. And as Christians, we want to think thoughtfully and practically about what we are being called to here and now, as well as how our multiple vocations impact how we live and what the path of wisdom might be. In this conversation, I sit down with Gordon T. Smith. He's the author of several books and the president of Ambrose University and Seminary in Calgary, Alberta. He's an ordained minister with the Christian and Missionary Alliance and a teaching fellow at Regent College in Vancouver, British Columbia. You'll enjoy this conversation about his most recent book coming out in June called Your Calling Here and Now, Making Sense of Vocation. Here's my conversation with Gordon. Welcome to the Finding Holy Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Hales, author of A Spacious Life. I love big ideas, but ideas have to move beyond an ivory tower to find their application in the midst of our work and our laundry routines. Here on the Finding Holy Podcast, expect conversations about how to live faithfully in a post-Christian world, but without the vitriol, posturing, or shouting across the aisles. During the next three months, during June, July, and August, you can expect episodes to release every other Tuesday. As the seasons change and our schedule changes, I hope it allows you to not miss an episode. So I'll see you back in two weeks. Well, I'm excited to welcome Gordon T. Smith to the podcast today. We're going to talk about some of his work and particularly about his most recent book that's coming out this summer called Your Calling Here and Now. So thanks for being with us, Gordon.
1: Ashley, my pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation.
2: Thank you. So you you write a book about vocation, and you've written a few books kind of circling around similar topics. Could you help us understand your own vocation? You talk about having multiple vocations in your book, um, but why do you keep writing on vocation?
1: Well, I keep writing on it because perhaps I'm dealing with my own stuff and projecting this upon other people. <laughs> uh, um, there's no, there's no doubt that I think one of the big ticket questions that all of us need to ask at any given time in our lives is, and how I open this particular uh, book is, at this time and in this place, what am I called to say and what am I called to do? Um, I think um, uh, if, if there's, I mean that I. That's a That's a question that comes up quite literally every day uh, in our mm-hmm. lives. and um, and there's just this feeling I think that all of us have on some level, hey, I want to get this right. I want to be a steward of the life that's been given to me. I want to be faithful mm-hmm. to who I am called to who I am um, in these circumstances. And uh, so there's no doubt that I'm wrestling with those issues. All of the issues that are that come out in this publication, I wrestle with them personally. And so this is just my kind of, uh, you know, not keeping my thoughts to myself kind of exercise.
2: Yes, I understand. I think all the best books have to have some origin in a struggle, right, from the author, for sure. You know, so you are a college president in Canada. How do you see the young adults that are coming through now struggling with questions of vocation? Um, And what... What might this kind of path of wisdom that you're laying out about being present in the moment and in our places help the young adults wrestling through vocation?
1: Well, I'm struck by how um, they all come with a range of both assumptions and pressure points, either from, from government, from church, or from um, parents, from family, in terms mm-hmm. of just how they are being kind of constrained If this is what a good life looks like, um, so, um, if you're in any kind of post-secondary system in the U S or Canada, Australia, UK, you have the, the messaging from the, in the public sector is STEM science, technology, uh, engineering or math. These are the vocations or occupations that count because they, and let's face it, the government's thinking their own tax base. So there's talk within the state of Florida and the state of Wisconsin, if you want to major in history, that's fine, but it's going to cost you more. The tuition is going to be higher. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I I think probably many jurisdictions are going to move in that direction. Um, my I grew up within a religious subculture that assumed that um, there is a certain kind of sacred higher calling. Um, and um, I think I somehow assumed that young people today don't have that kind of pressure, but they do. Um, I was part of a a consultation in Austin, Texas, maybe about four years ago with Asian Americans. Um, Mm -hmm. And I was the sole person of European descent in the room. And I was the sole person with gray hair. I was kind of the elder in the room. And because I had written on vocation and been part of conversations with many of these people, they invited me in, but talked about how uh, Asian Americans and people in the room came from South Asia, East Asia, Vietnam, Korea, China, Japan, South uh, Sri Lanka, India, all of them feeling huge pressure from parents uh, mm-hmm. about this is what a legitimate occupation would be. And mm-hmm. you will fulfill this as a way to kind of fulfill the, the family line or the family right. uh, brand. Um, this is what would bring honor, prestige to our family, as well as financial security. So mm-hmm. those kinds of pressure points that they feel. And if I can help young people in, uh, in my own world, uh, have the, have a fruitful, productive conversation about what it means to discern well, give Mm -hmm. them the tools to do that. And on some level, the hope or the encouragement to do that, there's few greater gifts that you can give to another person than,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: um, than a conversation about, uh, about their life work. Um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, so yes, no, I've been writing on it for a while and uh, grateful for the opportunities that I have in public speaking to also address the topic. So one thing led to another, and I decided through the pandemic, I'm going to write on this again.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, how do we begin to disentangle ideas of vocation and occupation? And if you could mention maybe some of those tools, you know, maybe um, it's a stay-at-home mom who's listening and going – you know, geez, all of my time is spent cooking and cleaning (laughs) or, you know, mopping up the mess. Um, I've left maybe a a graduate hopes and dreams um, elsewhere. How do we kind of recover a more full orb sense of vocation instead of simply a paid occupation?
1: Well, a couple of things. Yeah, no, very good, very important question. First of all, I do think we need to recover a sense of the ordinary and the mundane in the routines of life that these are, uh, this is just part, I mean, I just came through a huge budgeting process. It's not exciting, but like, hello, it's uh, <laughs> it's required. It's, it's it's required. It's part of, it's, it goes with the territory. Um, so we, we need to recover, get past this kind of, what was very much part of my youth. We're going to be heroes for Jesus in our yeah. generation, yeah. and we're going to win the world and save the world. Uh, but there's just this 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 heroic mentality that I mm-hmm. think is uh we're gonna do great grand things that is uh that at some point we need to lay down and set down yeah in terms of who our heroes are. Um and so that's the one thing I would I would say. Um the other is um to recover a sense of how God's direction in our lives is a is is a is a slow unfolding. Mm-hmm. And that there is with God no wasted time mm-hmm. um, so i I, d- I have a chapter in the book on mid career transitions mm-hmm. and i um i mean i I teach a seminary class here at, at the university, and uh, half the class are people in mid career mm-hmm. and uh, and one of them wendy, she's the mother of four daughters who have now all kind of grown up and are heading out of the home and here's her chance to do seminary studies and mm-hmm. And uh, she brings all of that to the table. None of that is wasted time.
2: Right.
1: Um, and so that's a, that's a perspective I think needs to be recovered. Um, you know, Moses wasn't called until he was 80, um, for goodness sakes. Um, so, you know, uh, to hold some of that, that uh, comparison with others lightly to say, mm-hmm. okay, in this season of life, where am I called to be? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, to find joy and contentment in whatever it is rather than always kind of hankering for something beyond this that's presumably or that we take to be more exciting or whatever that might be but to embrace to embrace the or to embrace the present Mm -hmm. uh, at this time and in this place what am I called to do on this Mm -hmm. day and to find joy in that
2: I loved that question and I was like I wish I would have had that question about 15 years ago (laughs) you know when uh, I was trying to finish up my PhD and um, was a young mom and it felt like you know being pulled in 1800 different directions um, but to begin to to ask that question you know in this time and in this place what am i being called to and towards um, and it can be something that, yeah as mundane as okay it's just getting a meal on the table or changing the diapers um, or a half an hour of reading uh, what sort of things do you feel like help cultivate that contentment uh you know if you do feel pulled um, in multiple ways through your multiple vocations. What are those habits uh, you talk about? Four capacities, um, particularly in your book. But what? How? How might we begin to embrace our moment in time to to be present to those around us?
1: Well, I know when I lose that sense is when I overcommit. I overextend. Yeah, I have. I've lost the capacity for no. Um, and so I take on too much, and then there's the, there's just this fragility to the day where I'm yeah. trying to run from one thing to the next. Um, and I feel that the, the, the various uh, demands on my life, legitimate expectations of my life, commitments I have made, um, are kind of enemies to one another. So that hmm. as a father, um, my children are enemies of my day job and vice versa. Uh, but usually it's because I have chosen to overextend um, and um, yeah, and yes, so one of the, one of the one of the skills or capacities we need to foster is the capacity to to navigate multiple demands and expectations on our time and on our work. And I think we need to get past i I actually fueled it, I think for some that your vocation and your occupation are one and the same thing. What is yeah. your lifelong calling and vocation? Your occupation, you're called to the arts or education or business, whatever it happens to be. And I, therefore, I tried to kind of fix some of that and as an act of penance by a chapter on multiple callings <laughs> mm-hmm. to say, this is probably the case for most, if not all of us. We have multiple callings. On any given day, I'm called to be both um, a university administrator and a writer, teacher, and uh, a father, grandfather. And sometimes those. Uh, those roles responsibilities demands are in competition with one another um and I need to unapologetically identify this is what matters mm-hmm. right now more than anything um, mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful um i you know I grew up in a similar kind of value set of of thinking of one 's occupation as one 's calling or even just the personality propensity towards meaning making right where Everything has to mean something. And I really appreciated in your book how you also said, we also just need to pay the bills. (laughs) You know, so, you know, for those of us who maybe, you know, have this strong desire to make meaning um, out of everything, maybe a little bit too much and just really, you know, we could maybe just sit back and go, okay, I also need to just do this work because it helps provide for my family. How do we begin to maybe untangle? The pressure that we place on ourselves about vocation, um, you know the sense of being a world changer or um, you know that that what we do has to have immense meaning and significance, uh, and we're maybe not able to connect those sorts of same ideas with yeah, just being a good neighbor or you know, um, being a good community member, or churchgoer. church goer. how do we get to like deconstruct in a good way some of those those things
1: yeah. Well, it probably comes back, at least for me, it comes back to the basic, simple practices of the Christian life, wherein, for one thing, I need to anchor my own my own inner sensibilities in a deep awareness of the love of God. Um, I think when I doubt the love of God, yeah. I get into performance mode. Um, I want my, my earthly father to be impressed with me, and so... Um, that translates into, I'm trying to vindicate myself by, and, and we live in a culture that, that commends you if you are busy. So you're, you you, you you know, I often get an email, I know you're very busy, but I'm wondering if, <laughs> hey. how do you know I'm very busy? Why do you just make right. that assumption? Well, because by virtue of your role, but that somehow being busy is mm-hmm. uh, is something that mm-hmm. we should be praised for. Um, and that if we're frenetically busy, right. It must mean because we're important and we have a self um yeah we we, and we keep fueling that um rather than that we live at a leisured pace as we engage the various dimensions of our lives and our work but for me it has to be rooted in a that's why for me spiritual practice is so much about reaffirming that this is where i want to live in a deep awareness uh an affective awareness that I'm loved by the creator. So I don't have to kind of vindicate myself. That becomes my point of departure, not something I'm pursuing. Um, Right. So it becomes then a response. Yeah. And I think that's the only thing that frees me to be able to say no to um, everything from my mother, who's no longer with us, but who was a significant factor in, um, was well, somebody it was very hard for me to say no to mm-hmm. when she mm-hmm. had expectations?
2: Yeah, speak about uh, a little bit more about the importance of saying no and this idea of living at a leisured pace. How does one do that when, yeah, when the demands on one's time are quite full?
1: Well, I will say two things. One, uh, by way of response, one is the, the our our personal prayers to have a sense before God. This is what I'm called to do no more no less does this fit within where now in my relationship with the creator there's a sense of which this is what has been given to me um so i'm but i also am a big believer that um i, I cannot navigate this road alone so i'm in conversation with peers and colleagues and um somebody at least one at least some, at least one person a generation older than myself mm-hmm. Um, who, who these are? These are friends and colleagues that will say, "Gordon, you seem stressed." And when they tell me that, that's their that's their way of saying, "What gives? Uh, you're not living in a way that is faithful to our shared kind of." So as much as anything, I, I view a book mm-hmm. like this as a way to foster good conversation with uh, colleagues and peers along the way.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah, inviting other people to help you in this, you know, what really just strikes me is much of the book is really trying to lay out practical pathways for wisdom and discernment in a very distracted and frenetic age. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, a lot of it, we tend to think often vo- uh, as vocation as um, an individual sort of thing, protect, particularly, I think, um, in North American contexts. And, and so the focus on inviting people in. Uh, to speak into your personal experience, I think is really valuable.
1: Well, I think it's indispensable. I don't. Th- I will often say to people, "You simply cannot navigate mm-hmm. uh, the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows, the challenges along the way on the journey of life. You can't navigate it alone. So, who are your companions that you allow to be mm-hmm. there? Whether it's over coffee or another appropriate beverage." Um, whatever the circumstances might be, and do we know how to talk to one another about the things that matter to us? Mm -hmm. And do we know how to be present to one another um, in a way that we are invited in without offering unsolicited advice um, or presuming to be... um, What does it mean to be a friend to Mm -hmm. another person? Um, To say the right... To to bring the apt word in season... um, So, and I want to be accountable too. So I have said to two of my peers, I will not overstay in my current role. And you have, I will be having conversations with you about when it's time for me to say, um, it's time for me to step down from this role because I don't want to overstay. And I don't want to be so uh, isolated that I I can't see it, Mm -hmm. that everybody else knows. It's really time for Mr. Smith to call it a day. Uh, everybody else can see it. I don't want to be the last one to know. (laughs) Yeah, Um, I've got two friends that I want to say to them, I want to be one of the first ones to know. Help me do that. (laughs) So so those conversations, um, and I think, no no doubt, I was in part influenced by observing my father, who was a very lonely man in his senior years, Um, did not have companions on, on the way in those years. Um, And I, God, Mm -hmm. God spare us from moving into our senior years as bitter, lonely, old women and men. But, um, but, um, yeah, Mm -hmm. I think that's as much as anything. So my daily prayers um, have a sense before God, this is what I must do Mm -hmm. today, if nothing else. Uh, Mind you, I also have a spouse who's more than prepared to tell me uh, today It is really imperative Mm -hmm. that you take out the garbage. That needs to be on your to-do list today. I thought we had an understanding. (laughs) Or, more seriously, you agreed to call our son uh, today. Uh, That is an an accountability to my (laughs) life partner that I think is, she has to sign off on just Mm -hmm. about everything that is a priority on any given day.
0: This episode is brought to you in part and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org.
2: Yeah, and, you know, as as we're talking to you, another thing that really struck me and kind of the opening pages of your book, you you spoke a bit about, you know, this question that anchors the book, you know, in this time and in this place, what am I being called to? And also how that actually frames our Our conversations with people, you know, that you've and you've mentioned it before about, you know, am I choosing the right words? Am I invited into this conversation? You know, am I self restrained for the good of another person? How does that develop, you know, as a sense of vocation uh, for you as an individual or, you know, as you maybe are looking and seeing just the vitriol online and everyone is just expressing their. Opinions and you know and and slandering one another. How does our speech? Um, what does that look like? How do we begin to have some of that restraint that you're talking about, or the sense of I'm only being called to say this much in this situation?
1: Well, that uh, that's the grace of good conversation, um, which uh, unfortunately is an underdeveloped art of, in our generation. Where we don't know how to disagree, we don't know how to disagree in a way that is constructive and generous, mutually respectful. We are disdaining of the people that differ with us and demonizing them. Um, That's a huge, huge problem. And as much as anything, I think one of the urgent needs of our generation is to recover the grace of good conversation. Um, I'm a huge fan of a couple of books that I've written on the topic. So Susan Scott's book, Fierce Conversations, I think is an indispensable kind of guide um, to what Mm -hmm. does it mean to speak well and to listen well. As my mother would say, you listen twice as much as you speak, that's a start. Um, And then no unsolicited advice, that's my wife's line. When we're with our sons, Mm -hmm. no unsolicited advice. The problem with that, Ashley, is that my sons don't realize... How much wisdom is available to them if they were just to ask? I know. So I have to kind of hint broadly <laughs> at, you know, there's wisdom here if you were just to ask. But yes, that's, that's yeah. my wife's rule, which means it's our rule.
2: I have some, I have some teenagers, so I'm, I'm writing that one down to remember. No <laughs> unsolicited
1: <fair> advice, <laughs> right. And I think also mm-hmm. to, to realize that many times we have to earn the right to speak. Um, I think there's a certain kind of assumption within, at least within my religious subculture, that because I know God personally, that means that I have a certain, it gives me an immediate right to comment on this, that, or the other, or to speak to you about this, that, or the other. Mm -hmm. You earn that right um, because you've demonstrated that you care. You've demonstrated that you listened well. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, So yes, how to how to speak with one another about controversial matters. Um, we just, Joel and I just brought a book home from the library entitled Impossible Conversations. I thought, oh yes, that's my day job. Here I go. I need this book.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yes, um, and then would you also tell us, you know, you've know, you written on institutions and organizations, obviously you're, you're heading an organization at the moment. How does vocation Uh, mean organizational thinking as well? You mentioned that.
1: Well, I have this uh, theory, this thesis that informs much of that, and that is that for all of us, if we want to make a difference in whatever line of work to which we are called, inevitably it means we're going to be part of a system or a social construct that leverages my capacity against your capacities for a greater end. You can make an uh, exponentially greater impact through the things that matter to you if you learn how to work collaboratively with somebody else to a common end. This is just another way of saying an organization or an Mm -hmm. institution. So we live in a day of deep ambivalence about institutions and perhaps understandably so, but uh, institutions actually are, are means by which we can defer to one another and leverage our commitment, our energy, our talent off against the talents and energies of somebody else to a common end.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that um, I want to say to everybody, every listener, if you are an artist, you want to learn how to work with the local gallery. If you're a school teacher, you want to you be part of a really great school that you can flourish in and you can contribute to its flourishing. If you're, you know, I could just keep going. You're going to be, whatever, whatever you're calling, you're going to find that it requires some level of engagement within an inst- within institution so um learning how to it seems to me that institutional intelligence the phrase that i use Mm -hmm. on my book title is actually a key vocational capacity regardless of what your calling is Mm -hmm. Um, you're going to work with a community association you're going to work with your own local church um you're going to work with whatever whatever i mean we can just keep going Mm -hmm. um
2: Yeah, tell us a little bit about what you mean by institutional intelligence and how we could begin to value that and develop it. Um, Because in a lot of ways, we could see the breakdown of personal vocation uh, partly due at least to our lack of institutional intelligence. You know, that is that we do not see how that is correct how we can fit into holes or be part of even self restraint for the good of something larger than ourselves.
1: I mean, there's no doubt that many people have experienced institutions as crushing, as uh, as limiting their capacity to speak and to act. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm I'm all I want to make the case for is that if we learn how to function within them, understand their leverage points, um, understand how to participate in them in constructive, generative ways, that uh, in actual fact, that we can they can be a source of deep joy, camaraderie with others. Some of our deepest friendships are going to happen. When we learn, you know, I I watch down the hall as I see two faculty members who one joined five years ago, one joined three years ago. They're now off for coffee across the way. The requisite, the beverage that that keeps this institution going is right there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's where I'll head after this conversation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That is those kinds of rich friendships that are formed. But also, that's where we learn how to speak and how to listen, uh, how to defer to the perspective of another if we can't learn to get along here where we have so many overlaps of shared values and commitments um and uh to help mm-hmm. uh, colleagues appreciate that in actual fact their flourishing depends on the flourishing of the institution as a whole and that therefore to be uh to work collaboratively with their colleagues and friends uh, is just a uh, a hugely essential kind of vocational capacity. And I wonder, Ash, I wonder where we learn this. I wonder when I meet people that don't seem to know how to work with another person,
2: mm-hmm.
1: whether it's, you know, where did they, where did they miss it along the way? Mm. Were they not part of a sports team in their undergraduate years? They realize that, you know, you just don't win unless you learn how to play alongside somebody else and, and to trust right. them yeah. and to work with them. If we don't learn this along the way, when by your late 30s, if you haven't learned this, I wonder if you ever do. Mm-hmm. And I meet people in their 40s and 50s clearly don't know how to work with other people, and I think what a what a deep loss, what a tragedy, yeah, um, that they don't know how to be part of a team. Mm-hmm. And I know that's an athletic metaphor, but mm-hmm. uh, to to defer to one question. another towards to a common end, um, it's it's very very sad um mm-hmm. when you don't know how to fight and when we see it on the public stage mm-hmm. um when we sorry for entertainment purposes mm-hmm. th- those of us north of the border we watch the U.S. Senate that for us is a source of both entertainment and frankly grief um yeah, yeah. so to say yikes these are grown adults that seemingly don't know how to work together in a bipartisan way um that's you know, frankly it's pathetic and unfortunately People take that to be a model of this is how I'm going to work with people across the mm-hmm. aisle, figuratively speaking, in our own church settings or in my mm-hmm. case in our work setting. hmm um,
2: mm-hmm. Right. That there 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 isn't a sense of collaboration or even a common good we that we are yeah. all working towards. What would you say might yeah. be a you know, a small step for someone who wants to reconsider maybe issues of vocation and um, what would they, what would you recommend besides buying your book and <laughs> underlining profusely? What would be um, just some maybe small steps so people could begin to ask themselves questions and, you know, to, to have those questions in community about what am I really here for and how can I steward my life well and yet maybe not also take myself so seriously that if things don't come to pass, yeah. I'm crushed.
1: Well, the good working principle is that God leads us one step at a time. And uh, there will always be setbacks and disappointments along the way. Just take that as a given. And, uh, and yes, it can be crushing, but uh, that's where the, the company of friends can play a crucial role. Um, I would say start small in terms of uh, projects that you're working on in a collaborative way, whether it's um, working in the garden with one's life partner, or whether it's uh, doing a construction project with one's um, sons or daughters or daughters-in-law, or uh, a cooking project, you know, cooking a meal together, these can be these can be hugely gratifying. Um, when I watch my wife and our daughters-in-law in the kitchen together preparing a meal, and I just see the energy that comes off of their teasing one another, mm-hmm. enjoying one another, and producing something that is extra- extraordinary, that. It was the fruit of their collaboration. When that happens, when, we, when we're when we able to say, as I was able to do a year ago, building birdhouses with my granddaughter, to hear her say the words, we did it, Grandpa. Uh, when the birdhouse goes up and she watches a bird go in, the huge joy that I see mm-hmm. in this, this girl who's 14, um, that she was able to do something collaboratively with her grandfather and then see the mm-hmm. outcome of it. To realize what joy comes when we work collaboratively to a common end um, and I say start mm-hmm. start with smaller projects maybe rather than trying to take on global warming which is right now dividing <laughs> us yeah
2: right yes that's really helpful um yeah something as small as a meal cooked in community or yeah. you know a, a joint project that we do with our hands which is another great part about your book is you know it isn't just the life of the mind you know it's life of our hands and our hearts as well um to think about being fully orbed people so thank you for your good work and helping us especially i think in in the, you know, in the midst of a pandemic to begin to i think a lot of us are really wrestling with questions of vocation um people have moved and changed jobs and um we're trying to figure out how it all fits together so thank mm-hmm. you for for helping us towards that end but as we conclude, I always love to ask my guests their laundry routine, and you actually mentioned laundry a few times. It's one of those mundane things that we must that must be done in kind of that first concentric circle of of our vocation. So, what does your laundry routine look like these days?
1: Yikes, this is awkward, Ashley. <laughs> um, in our in our household, like in most households of married couples, there's kind of an understanding of a division of labor: mm-hmm. who does what. Um, there's no doubt that part of my job within our marriage, at least, is I'm the I'm responsible for the removal of mouse corpses. Oh, uh, Joella, my wife does not do this. Uh, we <laughs> she'll set out the trap, but when that thing is effective in catching the little rodent, the expectation is that I will remove the same. Yes. In fact, I I heard her tell with you know why else would we get married to a run of her friends other than we need people to remove. <laughs> mouse bodies? Uh, Are men useful for anything else besides that? Um, So yes, in my household, Joel is the laundry master, and I try to coordinate, I try to help with the exercise, but also Um, just the the folding clothes is such a a, a tender act hmm. when you take uh, each other's uh, washed laundry and are folding it Mm-hmm. for stacking in the cupboard or whatever it might be or in the drawers uh there's a there's a tenderness there that uh is is pretty special but yes in our house she's the one that now she's the one that organizes all of that and I'm the mm-hmm. one that organizes I just had to throw in about the corpse removal so that you didn't think I was a non-contributor in substantial ways
2: <laughs> there you go <laughs> and you take out the trash it's good yeah my husband does the laundry in our house so generally, or at least he does our laundry. Um, So yes, we understand completely. Well, thank you so much for for being with us um, and your good, wise words to help us live out our vocation faithfully and in small ways, appreciate it.
1: Well, you're welcome. Thank you for your generous comments, appreciate it.
2: Friends, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gordon T. Smith. His book is thoughtful and practical and makes much of vocation without it feeling so big and so meaningful that you don't feel like you have a few small starting places. I recommend you get it as well as check out some of his other books and the links in the show notes as well. I love leaving my listeners with one small step. And I would encourage you to heed Gordon Smith's advice. Start with something small vocationally and bring others in. I love how he shared the stories at the end there about building a birdhouse with his granddaughter and his wife cooking with his daughters-in-law and those sorts of activities where we begin to realize in our bodies and our rhythms and our habits, what am I being called to here and now? And it might be as something as simple as being present in the kitchen with those you love. And it might be something as simple as helping retrain some of those muscles to begin to say that we can create something better together than we can on our own. So I'd love to hear what some of those things are. Would you reach out on social media? I am at AA Hales on Twitter and Instagram. I'd love to hear what your small step is towards your own vocation. Thanks for being here, friends. It is an honor to continue these good conversations that are thoughtful and practical And would you just take a second to rate and review the Finding Holy podcast? It is a really simple and quick way to help us have more conversations about things that really matter. So remember, friends, big things matter, but so does your laundry.